Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by Sue Ford at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Welcome again. Thank you to our team again. It's great to be together and have a little bit of a cooler day today. I hope you've all survived the last few hot days. It was Gary Lowe's and Jen's wedding yesterday, a very hot day. So I'm sure they didn't mind the heat, though. It was such an exciting day for them. So we're going to continue to look at the word of God spoken through the prophets today and our subject today is turn from self and we're looking at the word spoken through the prophet Haggai. I wonder how many people in the room, you put up your hand if this is you, came from another place in the world, you were born in another place other than Australia, could you put up your hand? Yeah, amazing, a lot of people. I wonder how many of you have been... um, it was been here for 48 years or more. You were born overseas, but of those people been here for 48 years or more, put your hand up if you were. Not so many, but still some. Well, put your hands down. Imagine if tomorrow morning you wake up and the Prime Minister says to you that you are to return home to your homeland where you were born. If you go, go back to where you were born and start all over again. I wonder how you might feel about that. I'm sure it would be quite disconcerting. But the Jewish people who Haggai spoke to, they'd been at least 48 years in exile in Babylon when they were given the opportunity to return to their homeland in Judah. And before we read about these people, it's good for us to have a little bit of a look at the backstory. So in 586 BC, Jerusalem, including the temple, was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And the last group of Jews that were taken into exile were taken into exile then into Babylon. 48 years later, in 538 BC, a year after King Cyrus of Persia had conquered Babylon and he was now ruler over the entire region of Assyria and Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree allowing the exiled Jewish people to return to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the temple of the Lord God of Israel. Now one might have imagined that there'd be a mass exodus of Jews from captivity after they had been taken captive. It wasn't like you, you probably chose to come, they'd been taken captive. You might wonder that there wouldn't be a whole lot that wanted to go home. But this was not actually the case. People had followed the advice of Jeremiah while they were in Babylon. The advice was to build houses and settle down, to plant gardens and eat what they produce, to marry and have sons and daughters. And most of the generation that had gone into exile had actually died, and this new generation only knew Babylon. Many had accumulated great wealth. They were on a great trading route and preferred the wealth and security of what they knew over returning to the unknown in Jerusalem, in Judea, which was only a tiny area in a massive Persian empire, and going back to starting all over again, beginning with a difficult four-month journey home. But there were about 50,000 people who chose to make the journey back, 50,000 Jews. 50,000 who knew God's purpose for his people involved the promised lands. And so they were prepared to leave their established way of life in Babylon to re-establish the Judean community and rebuild the temple. By faith, they responded to the call to return 
and committed themselves to the hardships of getting re-established in a land that had been devastated by war. And when they arrived, it wasn't all fun and games. The land had laid fallow for many years and their ancestors' homes were in disrepair. So they had to start by rebuilding houses and re-establishing themselves. And then in their early years back, there was a succession of poor harvests. So the hard work that they had done had yielded very little return. There were also legal problems. When King Nebuchadnezzar took the Jews captives, he had left some of the poorest Jews in the land to take care of the vineyards and the fields. And they had taken over the land of those who had been deported. And so when they came back, there was this complex legal situation between those who had stayed and those who had returned. These people also faced external opposition from neighbouring people and Persian officials as they began rebuilding the temple and Jerusalem. There was also discouragement from within. Their initial efforts to begin construction on the temple were met with comparisons with from, with the grandeur of the temple that had been there before, by people who had been around to see that temple. Perhaps they were saying things like this, this isn't as good as the temple in my day, things that we often say, and we need to be careful as we get older, looking back and comparing the present with the good old days. Because often we actually look back with rose-coloured glasses, as these probably did, people probably did. Remember, these people had forgotten that they had been in exile because of the nation's disobedience in those good old days. So perhaps those days weren't so good after all. So this was hard times for God's people. They were facing discouragement and failed dreams. Was this life that they'd returned to really worth it? They became apathetic and saw little reason to pay attention to their distinctive laws and practices that God had given them. Having initially laid the temple foundations, they rebuilt the altar and began offering sacrifices. But then they had little urgency about rebuilding the temple. They stopped building and instead they poured their energies into reconstructing their own homes and restoring their own livelihood. Gradually they lost their vision and hope and drifted into a lifestyle where God's house, the temple, was no longer a priority. Two years after work on the temple started, it stopped. Fourteen years passed by, and then in 520 BC, when King Darius was now king, God raised up the prophet Haggai to speak to the people. So let's now hear our reading from Haggai, chapter 1, verses 2 to 11, and Heather's going to read to us. Thank you, Heather. These people say... The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought 
to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labour of your hands. Thank you, Heather. We got there. So let's ask ourselves a few questions about this situation, see what God was saying and how it might apply to us today. Firstly, why was it so important for the returning Jewish exiles to rebuild the temple or the Lord's house, as it was called in the reading? To appreciate this, we need to understand the role and the importance of the temple. The temple was a sacred space for these people. The roots of the temple went back to the tabernacle in the desert. The glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle and God's presence had been with the people in the tabernacle as they journeyed to the promised land. Remember, Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know you are pleased with us unless you go with us? What else will distinguish us from all the other people on the face of the earth? Then when they arrived in the promised land and they were in a permanent place, the temple replaced the tabernacle. The temple was now symbolically the place of God's dwelling on earth, the place where heaven and earth intersect, a symbol of God's manifest presence among his people. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, it tells us. It was the centre of all Israelite culture and religion. It was the place where God and humanity were reconciled, where sin was dealt with through the sacrificial system. Its design, its location, its architecture, its materials all highlighted the fact that a holy God dwelt in the midst of the Israelite people. And the temple told the story that they were set apart as the people of God. Other nations were supposed to look on and see that. The response to God's command to worship at this place of God's choosing measured the success or failure of the reign of the kings of Israel and Judah, as we've heard when we were looking at the kings last month. And the results had been pretty much dismal all the way. So eventually God took his temple from his people, it was destroyed, and took his people from the temple. They were taken into exile. Yet even when the people were in exile, the Jews held the hope that the temple would one day be rebuilt. That was their hope. And the people would be restored and God's presence would once again dwell with them. So the rebuilding of the temple for a people wanting to live in the favour of God and his presence was absolute priority. Instead, they got busy with their own agendas. So what were the people actually doing? Basically, they were looking after themselves. 
One can sympathise with them really. Life was pretty tough and they needed to re-establish themselves. Though they had actually been given time to settle in their towns before they started rebuilding the temple. Despite the hardship and discouragement and despite the temple still being in ruins, the people were living in panelled houses. Now that might not sound very grand to us or like it would feature on the block or anything like that, but at the time it was decadent. Wood was scarce and these people found time and money and energy to go up into the mountains and get the wood and panel or beautify their homes. While they were passionately pursuing their own agendas, God's house lay in ruins. These people had actually got used of life without a temple. After all, they hadn't had a temple in Babylon. It wasn't that they thought the temple shouldn't be built. They simply thought it wasn't the right time. That would happen when other things were sorted, when they had time, when they had energy, when they had finances, when there weren't too many other pressing demands on their lives. So what does God say to them through the prophet Haggai? The word of God from Haggai seeks to awaken the people of God to their misplaced priorities. He questions them, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house, my house, the temple, remains a ruin? Give careful thought to your ways. You're harvesting with little return. You're eating but never satisfied. You're drinking but never have your full. You're putting on clothes but are not warm. You earn money but never have enough. Because, in fact, your priorities are wrong. You seek to work your own lives out without me, without my presence, without my dwelling with you. Don't you remember I'm the one who created you in the world in which you live? Things are all the wrong way round. Haggai is saying, turn from looking after yourselves and living independently of me. Remember who you are, you're my people, and remember who I am, I'm your God. Turn from self and go build the temple, so I might take pleasure in it and be honoured and bless you. Obedience and blessing began by them giving priority to the place of God and his presence with them. Now for some good news. Well, whereas Israel's response to the prophets had most often been indifference, mocking or hostility, here the people recognised the rightness of what Haggai spoke. They repented, they turned around and they responded with enthusiastic obedience. Work began in the temple just 23 days later and soon after that they observed the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the feast that celebrated God's presence guiding the Israelites through the wilderness into the promised land. And then the temple was completed in five years. They put the words of the prophet into action and recalibrated their lives. So what might this be saying to us today? How does it apply in our lives? Should we start building a temple? Obviously not. The book of Haggai has often been pulled out as a fundraiser when there's a grand church building program coming up. Yeah, come with the warning to give heaps and heaps of money to build this magnificent house of the Lord. 
I'm sure our wonderful facilities manager, Gladys Burgess, would love it if that was the case. She could put all her dreams into action and build the underground car park and the second level and the electric doors and all the wonderful plans she has, and we'd all love it too. They're all great ideas. However, sadly, I think that would be a very simplistic way to apply this scripture to us today. Although there are definitely implications for our giving and serving in the church. So let's follow the temple theme again, a theme that's right through the scriptures from right at the beginning right to the end. All of these Old Testament symbols for God's dwelling on earth, the tabernacle and the temple, were provisional and temporary. They're all pointing forward and anticipated the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in John chapter 1 verse 14, the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling that's the same word as tabernacle, made his tabernacle among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. Like the glory filled the temple, the glory is in the Lord Jesus. God's glorious presence came into the world in a new way through Jesus. Remember when Jesus was asked what miraculous sign he would do um, to prove his authority? He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews, of course, thought he was talking about the bricks and mortar temple and were horrified. But the temple he spoke of was his own body. The glory of God in the earth, the transforming presence and rule of God in the world came in the flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus. Jesus became the crucial temple, the ultimate meeting place between God and sinful people. He is the ultimate priest. He is the ultimate sacrifice. His flesh, his shattered, broken body, is the shattered, broken temple. In his death, all humanity's sinfulness is dealt with as Jesus absorbs the collective effects of selfishness and sinfulness into himself. Then he rises on the third day to become the ultimate meeting place, the new temple between God and sinful people. We don't have to go to the temple to be in the presence of God. The temple came to us. But not only is the temple speaking of Jesus' body, followers of Jesus, we are called the temple of God. Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God has chosen not only to communicate with us, but chosen to dwell in us by the Holy Spirit, Jesus in us. God's presence in us defines who we are. We as Christians don't just assent to a set of beliefs that are sort of out there. We invite Jesus by the Holy Spirit into our lives as Lord. But that's not all. The church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, is called the temple, the place of God's manifest presence in the earth. In Ephesians we read, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the presence of God, symbolic in the temple, defined the people of God in Israel. Jesus, the true temple living in us, defines us as believers, followers of Jesus. Jesus defines the church as communities of people where Jesus is present as Lord. 
So the thing that defines us is fundamental to who we are and must have priority in our lives. His presence is what sustains us through thick and thin. Nothing compares with knowing God with us, in us. When lying awake at night in despair or worrying about your future or anything else, it's not knowing the theology of suffering, which we need to know. It's not that that comforts us. It's knowing God with us. Jesus himself said something similar to the words of Haggai. Remember Haggai prophesied about their eating but never having enough, drinking but never having their fill, putting on clothing clothing but never being warned, earning wages to put in a purse with holes in it? Jesus said, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more important than these things. And after all, the pagans run after these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Jesus said, instead, seek first his kingdom, that's Jesus' rule and kingship, and his righteousness, that's your right relatedness to God through his death and resurrection, and all these other things will be given to you as well. This isn't about not caring for ourselves. Of course, we all need, we know we need to work and provide for ourselves and provide for our families. It's not about being a zealot. It's not about being a stoic. And it's not about being a doormat to everyone around. But it is a warning about right focus and how we order our lives. God doesn't just want our leftovers, just our leftover time or our leftover money or our leftover devotion once we've sorted out all our own things. But he is saying, seek first God's rule and reign in every area of your life through the Holy Spirit. Fill your thoughts with his desires. Turn to him first. Remember we used to sing a little song, which I think is so good. Jesus, be the center. Be my source. Be my light. Be my hope, the fire in my heart, the wind in my sails. Be the reason that I live. Be my vision. Be my path. Be my guide. When his presence is your priority, other things take their rightful place. But if we don't put God first, very quickly, other things, often other good things, take priority and become idols in our lives. Very quickly, but very subtly, our identity will be tied up in all those other things. How we look, what we wear, what we eat and drink. Just look at all the food programs on TV. Where we go, what we earn, what we do. Even serving in the church, as good as it is and what we must do, can become our identity and our hearts can be far from him. Our world abounds with making us think we need more for our bodies, things to feed it, clothe it, cool it, refresh it, relax it, entertain it, and so on. Self-indulgence feeds our culture and our economy, actually. Tim Costello says, We're all driven by the invisible, very plausible and dominant story of our culture that goes simply, The richer I am, the happier I'll be. This drives us and we so easily get caught up on the treadmill of life. Then we become envious and competitive and feel a victim if we don't have, if we don't wear the right labels, if we aren't getting ahead in our career or if we're not being picked for whatever we want to be picked for. We too are human and without Jesus as priority, as centre, 
we will worry and strive no differently than other believers. But God provides us with a different story. He provides us with relationship with God, with freedom from sin, with a different kind of life where Jesus is centre, with a hope and a future not defined by the dominant story of the world in which we live. But I think it's true to say it's not easy to escape the influence that all, that's all around us. Again, Tim Costello offers something that I find really helpful. He says that we're all taught to compare up, compare what we have against those who have more or who we think are better. But if we learn to compare down, compare ourselves to those who have less, we learn to be grateful We learn to be content as we see how blessed we really are. We learn to be more generous and kind. We learn to see more of God's goodness. We're more able to live in that space of knowing that God is with me and therefore more able to follow him. So going back to Haggai, these Jews who who obeyed and were prepared to to return to rebuild the temple began very enthusiastically. But their enthusiasm quickly waned. Many of us begin our Christian walk very enthusiastically, but over time we face difficulties, things don't turn out as we perhaps expected, we become disillusioned with the church. After all, it's full of people like us. We encounter personal trials that God doesn't take away. We have family difficulties, marriage difficulties. Life moves on and slowly but surely The focus is elsewhere. After all, there's a career to worry about, there's family to care for, bills to pay and other demands on time. You'll still identify as a Christian, still attend church when it fits in. You haven't rebelled, but if you're honest, God is not your priority. Jesus has drifted slowly into the background. He's just another part of your busy life. You don't have the same desire for Jesus' presence as you once did. He doesn't really define who you are. Your career, your possessions, your dreams, your pursuit of happiness, your comfort, your safe living have gradually become priority. It's not that you think Jesus shouldn't be priority, but just not now, not until you get your life in order. And of course, we all know there's nothing wrong with the possessions, with the blessing of possessions, with a good job, with pursuing dreams. They are all God's good gifts to us. And Jesus certainly did not despise the pleasures of life. But if we don't put God first, and first, even those good things that God blesses us with very quickly become idols in our lives. And very subtly, our identity will be more about those things than Jesus himself. And then the same kind of stresses and tensions and anxieties and worries will dominate our lives as those who don't know Jesus. The church too must keep Jesus centre and his presence the main thing as priority. Not our programs, not our vision statements, not our building programs, not social justice, not community outreach, as good and necessary as all these things are. But without Jesus, we have actually nothing to offer. He's the hope of the world, not us. We just have the privilege of making him known to the world. So in a world filled with increasing activities and opportunities, 
Individuals and families need to consider their priorities in light of God's kingdom. Prioritizing means saying no to some things so you can say yes to the better things. Will we clear space in our busy schedules to hear the voice of God and to be spiritually nurtured with regular prayer, reading of God's word, Bible study? Will we trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding? Will we in all our ways acknowledge him so that he will direct our paths? Will we prioritise being part of the body of Christ? That means regularly gathering together and playing our part that will involve serving, giving financially, using our gifts, caring for one another so that others in the world might experience God's grace and love through the church. Of course, we know there are seasons in everyone's life, times of sickness, busier times than usual, busier times for family or work, other pressing things. But even then, maybe especially then, we need to seek God first. We need to know God with us then more than ever. And he will order our lives in those seasons too. And perhaps his ordering may be to slow us down and pull us back from some of the other things we've been involved in. So in finishing, let's ask ourselves, who is the centre? Who has first place in our lives? Do we desire the presence of Jesus more than anything else? Who has first place in the life of Mount Pleasant Baptist Church? Is our focus Jesus? God calls us, like he did those, Israelite, those Jewish people, to turn from self and turn to him. And keep doing this. We don't do this once. We do it over and over and over and over again. We do it every day, sometimes many times in a day. Will we allow him to recalibrate our life, to direct our paths in new ways? I want to finish with the words of a little song we used to sing with our kids. I won't sing it to you, though. I won't make you suffer that. Some of you will know it, but I think it's quite pertinent. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that we do have a heavenly father that cares for us. Enough that he sent his son into the world, who for a time made his dwelling in the earth, who died on a cross, who overcame sin and death, who rose again on the third day and sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. Father, help us to seek you first and to fix our eyes on Jesus. And help us be those who recalibrate the areas of our lives that we need to. And to do this daily, Lord, so that we do keep you as priority, so that we do keep you as the centre. And help us be more open and aware of your presence, so that we will not grow weary or worried or anxious or discouraged and lose heart. Instead, Lord, may we be those who by your presence in us and through us, Bring glory to your name and make your name known in the earth. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. 
If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.